For coming um, tonight's class was dedicated by um, Mrs. Shirley Perlis, and this is in honor of her father's yard site, uh, which was last week on the 11th of Kislev. Yitzchak Ben Shlomo, may Hashem have a very great Aliyah to the greatest of heights. May He channel lots of great, great, great blessings to you and your family for only Mazel Bracha and only good things. Another dedication tonight was by our dear friend Stephen um, Leance, Stephen Shimon Leance. This is an honor, and Lischus, his wife, Shandel Malka Bascha Yehudel, um, uh, which tonight is her birthday. May Hashem bless her with Hashnas Bracha and Hatzlacha, and Gesund and good health and Nachas, and only Mazel and a lot, a lot of Nachas on the children, and the two of you, many, 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 many happy, happy, happy years together with much, 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 much joy and happiness, and only Mazel and Bracha and Parnasa Barachava and only good things. Thanks for the dedication. Another dedication was by uh, Ramosha and Esther Davidov. And this is in honor of Esther's, Mrs. Davidov's father's yard site, which is tonight, the 19th of Kislev. Aaron ben Baruch, may his neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. And channel lots of brachas down to you and to your family. Only mazel brach and only, only good things. Such an auspicious day to have a yard site on the 19th of Kislev, which as we spoke last week, is a great Hasidic holiday. Um, may the merit of the tzaddikim, uh, the Mizricha Magid, who is your is tonight, the successor of the Holy Baal Shem Tov, shine lots of brachas to you, to all of us over here, to all the Jewish people. We need much merit and much bracha, and also the merit of the Balatanya, who today is the day of his release, and the spreading of Hasidus, who was given the, 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 the green light to go ahead and to to literally swamp the entire world with light, with godliness, with inspiration. 
May the light of these great tzaddikim and may the light of Hasidus illuminate in the hearts of every Jew across the world and bring about the time of great knowledge, the knowledge of Hashem, uh, which will culminate in the coming of Moshiach. May we merit to see that now. I do want to invite everyone to um, this Matzai Shabbos. Uh, we didn't make it. We didn't send out the uh, advertisement yet, but as Hashem tomorrow, this Matzai Shabbos, Saturday night, uh, the night before Hanukkah, we're having our Mayan Yisrael Hanukkah event. It's going to be a Malavan Malka and a Kumzitz and a symposium, all wrapped up in one. It's going to be really great. We're going to have uh, three speakers talking on the con- about the application of the story of Hanukkah, of how that applies to the current situation of the Jewish people around the world, the global situation, the Jewish people in, in, in the land of Israel in particular, lessons we can derive from the miracles of Hanukkah, from the beauty of the holiday of Hanukkah. So it's going to be this month's Shabbos, we're going to have Rabbi Avram Chapnik from the JLE, we're going to have Rabbi Yitzchak Adlerstein, and myself, we're going to, each one will present for 15-20 minutes, an idea, we're going to have guitars and music and singing, and it's going to be a really uplifting event. Again, a pre-Hanukkah event, we're doing it before Hanukkah because everybody on Hanukkah is busy with doing their Hanukkah parties. So this is, this Matzai Shabbos, come be inspired and get some, a lot of light for everyone, men and women, this Matzai Shabbos starting at 8.30 here at Mayan. Okay, now we're ready to begin our class. Uh, this week is Pasha's Vayeshev, and um, a very exciting, dramatic, beautiful story, I mean, painful, and, but, uh, you know, we see that, you know, big things are happening. And uh, the story is about Yosef and his brothers, Joseph and his brothers. And the Torah relates how Yosef has these dreams. And in his dreams, he sees uh, a vision of royalty, that he will be the master of the king over the brothers. He has basically two dreams. The first dream is a dream about him being out in the field together with his brothers, and they are sheaving sheaves, bundling bundles. And everyone has their sheave, which they collect it. Their bundles surround his bundle and they bow down to his bundle. Implying, he says, because his bundle stands up in the middle, their bundles get up in the, around them in a circle, they bow down to his. And obviously the interpretation is so clear that they are going to be bowing down to him and he's going to be a king over them. The brothers very much dislike that, that he didn't like Yosef to begin with, let alone that their father gave him extra attention and extra love. They really, really didn't like this and this brought them to hatred, to hate Yosef because he went and related this dream to them. Then he has another dream. In the second dream he sees the sun, the moon, and 11 stars all bowing down to him. Which again, it's a very, very clear interpretation of what that means, that Yosef is destined to be a king, which in the end, so it happened, Yosef became a king, and the brothers and his father and his mother all came, and, and the father and everybody, the family came to bow down to him in Egypt. Now Yosef goes and relates that dream to his father, to his brothers in front of the father, in front of their father Yaakov. The first dream he never related to Yaakov. The second dream he relates to his father Yaakov and in the presence of his brothers. And when his father hears the dream, his father yells at him. The Pasuk says, This is in verse number 10, Pasuk Yud, Perek Lamed Zion. Anyways, it says, Vayisaper al Aviv, he relates it to his fathers, Vayelechav and to his brothers. Vayigo by Aviv, and his father yelled at him, Vayoyim Eloi, and he said to him, What kind of dream did you dream? What's the silliness? What are you crazy? What kind of dream did you dream? Me and your mother, Vachecha and your brothers, 
that we're going to bow down to you to the ground. I mean, simply, are you, are you really expecting this? That we, me, and your mother, and the 11 sons, and my 11 brothers will come and bow down to you? That's ridiculous. Then the pastor continues, the brothers, however, were still jealous of him. They were jealous of him. But his father awaited the matter. Meaning his father was waiting, as Rashi says, waiting impatiently. When will the day come that this will happen? Okay? That's what it says. So when, when Yaakov um, dismisses the dream, and he says, will I come, me and your mother and your brothers, to bow down to you? So Rashi explains that it wasn't just a dismissal about wondering, what do you think, what are you off your mind? That you think that I'm going to bow down to you, your brothers will be, you think you're a king or something? Um, Rashi says that the dismissal was actually, maybe, maybe, why are you dismissing it? Maybe that's true, he has a dream. Maybe it's a prophetic dream. And his dream is that they will bow down to him. Why is Yaakov dismissing it? So first of all, we have to realize, yet Rashi is going to tell us, that Yaakov is dismissing it not because he wants to dismiss it, as we see a minute later that Yaakov is hoping for the realization and the fulfillment and the materialization of this dream. When it says that Yaakov was, um, when, he, when it says that Yaakov uh, dismissed the dream was because he wanted to dismiss it to minimize the brother's, the brother's jealousy and the brother's hatred. That's why he was dismissing it. But Rashi says it was actually a... Yaakov dismissed the dream on, on solid ground. Yaakov said part of the dream is impossible. Your mother is not alive anymore. His mother, Rachel, Rachel had passed away. We learned it last week in the parsh. So this is... Um, and being that that's the case, it's impossible for this dream to materialize. So obviously the dream is flawed, and if the dream is flawed, so it's not going to happen. That's what Rashi says. Your mother died already, so the dream cannot happen. But Rashi continues, but he says, even though Yaakov says the dream is flawed, the dream was not flawed. The dream was a prophetic dream, down to the very last detail. Why? He didn't know. Yaakov didn't know one thing. And when it says that the sun and the moon, which imply father and mother. In this case, there is a mother. There isn't his real mother, but there is his surrogate mother, which is Bila, because she raised him. After his mother died, when he was still a young child, Yossi was about six or seven years old, when his mother died, he had his, his mother's maid, who later became Yaakov's wife, Bila, she raised Yosef. So she's considered his mother, because when she raised him, took care of him, that uh, she, she became his mom. So, and she was one of the, she came down to Mitzrayim, and she bowed down to Yosef. So therefore, it was true when it says, Father Rabbi, actually Nachmanides argues on, on Rashi, and Nachmanides says, Bila wasn't alive anymore at that time. When they, when, when they, when later, when they went down in the, uh, 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 during the famine, he says, Bila, Bila had died already. And he proves it, because he says, when it lists all the, all the people who came down to Egypt, it lists, um, it, the Torah says the, the, that Yaakov came down with his sons and the wives of his sons, it doesn't say his wives. So he implies that all his wives had already died by that time. Yaakov outlived all four of his wives and all of them passed away already. That's what the Nachmanides says. But other Mepharshim defend Rashi and say it's, it's, and they bring from Medrash and from other places that Bilal was, was alive and at that time. It actually says that when the brothers, after, after Yaakov passes away, 
later, all the way in the end, the Pashas Vayechi, it says when Yaakov, their father, passed away, the brothers were afraid that Yosef would, be, would take revenge. He was waiting until Yaakov would pass away, and now he would take revenge for what they did to him. So therefore, they sent, it says, um, they sent messengers to Yosef to plead for their behalf. So Rashi says they sent um, their brothers, uh, the sons of Bila and Zilpah, the ones that were close to Yosef, because in the beginning, you know, the family was divided. The sons of Leah, they were, they were very jealous of Yosef, and they hated him. But Yosef befriended, it says right in the beginning of the parasha, Yosef befriended the sons that were considered like kind of like second-class citizens because they were the sons of the maids. So being that Yosef was kind of close to them, they sent them to go appease Yosef. However, Targum Yonason says, the Targum Yonason, Benoziel, Targum Yerushalmi, that the one that they sent was Bila, because they knew Bila was his stepmom. He was very, if his own mother would come and plead on their behalf. So that's one of the sources that, of course, Bila was still alive. And that's what Rashi says. Rashi is saying over here that Bila, that Yaakov did not know that this was referring to his stepmom, to Bila, surrogate, surrogate mother who raised him. And she would be the one taking the place of the moon of his mother and bowing down. Okay. Okay, that's the, so that's what Rashi says. Now he continues and he says, Our teachers, however, learned out from here, There isn't a dream that doesn't have details in the dream that are, that are, that are not meant to be fulfilled. In other words, dreams can be, there are many times that there are dreams are some kind of a semi, semi-prophecy. There are many times that dreams are from heaven, from above, they're notifying a person about events that are going to occur. Okay? You have to know. It's not, oh, you know, some people get frantic by a dream. If you do, there's a process of, you know, of how do you deal with a negative dream and the like. Hopefully we should all have good dreams. But dreams have, but even when you have a true dream, it will come along with certain details that are foolish and are silly and they're, they're just, they're, they're meaningless. It might be that the main part of the dream will happen, but, but not always, not just not always. Every dream, there isn't a dream where everything is accurate. That's what the sage, and they learn it out from here. Because over here there was a detail that wasn't meant to occur, which is what? The moon bowing down. The moon is the mother, and Rachel is not alive. Um, okay. The Yaakov Neskaven, then, then Rashi continues, and he says, Yaakov's intention was, Now, if, Rashi, if Yaakov knows this, that there isn't a dream that doesn't have any, that, that, always, that every dream has details that are, that, that every, de, every dream has details that are not meant to happen, and therefore, when you have a part of the dream that's not true, it doesn't negate, it doesn't disqualify, it doesn't, you know, knock off the entire dream. So if so, why was Yaakov saying to Yosef, Havoy Navay, am I going to come? Why is he dismissing the dream? So Rashi says that he wasn't really dismissing it. He was only dismissing it in front of the brothers. Because he was saying, because he didn't want they should be jealous. He wanted to calm the fire of jealousy and hatred. He wanted to calm things down. He realized that there was the animosity that was brewing over here. And he was worried for the well-being of Yosef. So in order to, to calm things down, he made this statement even though he knew that even though there were certain parts of the dream that were flawed, it doesn't, it doesn't negate the whole dream. And the dream is a prophecy, and it is true. And this one detail is not true, because that's the rule by dreams. And he realized that his sons don't know that about dreams. 
He knew that. That was a teaching he may, must have heard from when he was in yeshiva by his teachers, Shem, Ve'ev, or wherever he studied. They gave him this, 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 this teaching about dreams, that a dream can have one or two details that are flawed, but his, his, his sons did not know that. And therefore, by saying, hey, this is impossible, he would at least take it out of their minds. That's what he wanted, even though he believed in it. Just like it's impossible with your mom. So through the rest of it is, is off. The rest of it is void and nothing. The dream means nothing. It's a silly dream. Okay. Now, by reading this Rashi, it seems like there's a contradiction from the beginning of the Rashi to further in the Rashi. In the beginning of the Rashi, Rashi seems to imply that every part of the dream came true. When it says sun and moon, it's Yaakov and his mother, father and mother, but the mother means a stepmother. Okay? Then a minute, moment later, Rashi says, there is a rule that dreams have certain details that are not true. So implying that what? That the dream was not true, completely. That there is something in the dream that's not true. So which one is it? Is it true or is it not true? What's going on? How do we want to understand Yosef's dream? Are all the details of the dream, is the, is the dream true to the very last detail? Or are there parts of it that are just um, meaningless? So which one is it? So therefore the Mepharshim say, Re'em, Rebeliyom, Ezrahi, the Qur'arye, the Maral of Prague, great commentators on Rashi, they say that there are two explanations in Rashi. These are two different interpretations. Rashi over here has explaining this dream with two, 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 two opinions. According to the first opinion, which is the simple pshat, everything in the dream is true. And it's referring to his stepmom. According to the second, it's only that Yaakov didn't know it, but why is Yaakov dismissing it? If it's all true and it's referring to the stepmom, why is Yaakov dismissing it? It's that Yaakov didn't realize that it's referring to Bill. Okay, that's one interpretation. Second interpretation, that no, there is a part of the dream that's not true. Like the teachers teach us about dreams, that every dream has certain parts that are not meant to be, details that are not, that are not, uh, that are not real. If so, um, right? And therefore Yaakov is dismissing, Yaakov, Yaakov knows that, and he's dismissing it only for the brothers. That's the second interpretation. According to this, however, comes out, that according to the first interpretation, according to Rashi's first pirush, according to his first interpretation, Yaakov doesn't accept the dream. Because again, he doesn't know it's referring to Bila. And according to the first pirush, we're not, we're not going based on this idea that dreams are not completely true. So if the dream is flawed, then it is completely flawed. Finished off. That's according to the first pirush. The problem with that is the Pasuk says, the verse says clearly, explicitly, in the next Pasuk, it says in a very, very open way, very clearly, that his father was waiting for the fulfillment of it. So how can you even give any kind of an explanation to say that Yaakov thought the dream is not true, when it says in the next Pasuk that he sat, not just, not just he, was, he believed in it, it says he was waiting. Rashi uses the terms, he was waiting and hoping. When will this happen already? When will, the, when will the dream materialize? Therefore, we have to say that um, we have to try to find a different explanation over here. It's more, it's, it, it, it makes more sense to say, it's more likely to say, that Rashi is not telling us two separate interpretations. 
according to the first interpretation, Yaakov doesn't believe the dream. The dream is a... Uh, I mean, again, everybody agrees that the dream was a true dream that we see later the Torah says it happened. But what is Yaakov thinking? So according to what I just said earlier from the name of the Re'erev Le'om, Mizrahi, and, and the Gurari and the Maral of Prague, there is an arg- there's two interpretations whether Yaakov accepted or Yaakov didn't accept. Okay? First interpretation, he doesn't accept it. Second interpretation that the, Machacham, the, the rabbis say, he did believe in the dream, he just felt that there are parts of it that are flawed. Okay, let it be flawed, because that's the rule by all dreams. Every dream comes with a little bit of junk. Okay? That is... That is that, 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 but we said, again, according to this, the problem we are having over here is that why is... The Pasuk says it clearly that Yaakov believed the dream. Okay. So therefore, let's learn the Rashi a little different. And what we're going to say is, you see, there's a little clue in this Rashi. Rashi, when Rashi brings the second explanation, usually whenever Rashi brings two interpretations and they're arguing, Rashi will say, Davarachar, another pshat. That's the words. Davarachar, another interpretation. Or Rashi will say, Verabbi Seinu Amru, our Rebbe's say differently. But Rashi doesn't use that term over here, Verabbi Seinu Amru. Rashi just continues and Rashi says, Rabbi Seinu Lamdu Mikan, that our teachers learn out from here. It seems to imply that Rashi is just continuing. He says a statement. Yaakov doesn't know it's referring to Yosef's stepmom. Then he continues. And our teachers learn out from here that there's no dream without, without a flaw. So therefore what we're going to say is, there's no two explanations, it's one explanation. And the idea is as follows. What, from this that we see that Yaakov dismisses the dreams, at least in, even if he's just dismissing it for the brothers, not for himself. Was, he's, from this that we see that Yaakov is dismissing the dreams, there has to be something over here to base that dismissal. Okay? If he's dismissing it, something has to be the legitimate reason why to dismiss it. So Rashi says that the legitimate reason of why to dismiss the dream is because there's one part of it that's obviously false. The mother is not there. Okay? Mother is not there. Um, now, Rashi's telling you, even though Bilal was not there, you should know, I'm sorry, Rachel is not there. Rachel is not alive. But really it's referring to Bilal. Okay, but Yaakov doesn't know this. So Yaakov is saying that what? The dream is, there's a, there's a flaw in the dream. But now Rashi has a problem. If Yaakov is dismissing the dream, and he thinks there's a flaw in the dream, how come, it says in the next Pasuk, that the father's waiting for this to be fulfilled, if he himself just ridiculed the dream and said it can't be. So therefore Rashi continues. Our teachers learn out from here, from this, from this very thing, that even though Yaakov poked a hole in the dream, found a, 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 a flaw in the dream, a blemish. Yet Yaakov waited for it to happen. So from here our sages derive that you don't have to dismiss a dream completely when you find some things that are faulty in the dream because that's the way dreams are, that dreams come with, with certain details that aren't true. So it's one, one explanation. In other words, Yaakov, it's Yaakov, Rashi begins telling us that what? That when Yaakov, when Yosef told the dream, Yaakov says it cannot be because your mother is not alive. And he really thought there was a flaw in the dream. Rashi now tells you a side note. By the way, you should know that that was, a, that was Yaakov's mistake. The truth is that the dream was fully true. There is a, that even his mother coming is also true. 
But Yaakov doesn't know that. But yet, even though Yaakov doesn't know that the dream is true and he thinks that there is part of the dream that's false, still Yaakov was waiting for the fulfillment of the dream. Why? Because just because one detail isn't true doesn't call for the dismissal for the whole thing because our teachers learn out from here that there's no dream without empty, without, without uh, things that are not real. And that's why. If so, then Rashi's going back. If so, why did Yaakov dismiss it? If Yaakov himself knows the rule, that even if there is a part that's not true, it doesn't, it doesn't invalidate, doesn't dismiss the entire thing. How come Yaakov was ridiculing it? The answer is, he was doing it intentionally in order for the brothers to, for them not to, not to, not to, uh, not to be, not to add fuel to the fire of their hatred by them hearing that Yosef is going to be their leader. Okay, this would be the explanation. The problem, however, is according to this. So in the bottom, bottom line, we, we have a little bit of a problem or we have a contradiction. Because we're saying that what? That really it is referring to who? Who is it really referring to? When it says your father and mother will come, it's referring to Bila. It's referring to Yaakov's, to, to Yosef's stepmother. If that's the case, then you have over here a perfect dream that was completely fulfilled. So, but isn't there a rule that every dream comes with certain parts that are not true? If we say that both these interpretations converge, and both these interpretations, and both these interpretations converge, and, and, and they're one and they're one pirush, so now you have a problem. Because we're saying that what? That really the dream Rashi tells us clearly that the dream is MS. The dream is true, it's referring to Billah. Yet there is a rule that says there's no dream without Dvarim Bitalim, without parts. That are not true, but this but, but but this dream then is an exception, because in this dream everything is true. At the very end, this dream is true, right? So, the b- b- simple words. The simple question is like this: Where is the dvarim betelim in this dream? In this dream that Yosef has, where is the part that's not true? So, so we have to reanalyze. So, therefore, we can say. And this is as follows: that um, basically on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on another question, which is just very fundamental. When you, I mean, when you, when you play close attention when you're reading the story, I mean, you got to ask yourself just a simple question. It says Yaakov is standing and waiting. He's waiting impatiently. When is this going to come true? That what? That my son will be a king. My son will be a ruler, a king, and all his brothers are going to prostrate themselves before him, bow down before him. Not only the brothers, but Yaakov also. is going to come and bow down to the ground like you bow down to a king because he is a king and he will bow down to him. Why in the world would Yaakov anticipate and await for that to happen? I mean, everybody's happy if the son becomes a, a, a successful. Success is one thing. Okay, not just successful, but becoming a ruler. Not just a ruler, but a ruler over a superpower, like all wonderful. But to have your own father go and bow down to his son? Now, we know, sages tell us an interesting thing. Sages say that the love of a father for a son, for a child, is so powerful and so strong that a father is not jealous of a child. A person is jealous of everyone else. Envies. You know, people 
that someone exceeds someone, you have a colleague or whatever, and they do better than you and whatever. So there's a slight envy, sometimes bigger, depends on a person's uh, um, character, makeup, and the like. Uh, we all suffer from different forms of jealousy. But the one type of jealousy we will never have is a father will never be jealous on a child. Even if a child outdoes their parent in a very big way, the father is proud, feels wonderful for the child, and never is jealous on the, or, uh, on the child. So, okay, we should understand that Yaakov is not going to be jealous of Yosef's power, that he excels past Yaakov. But it's another thing that, the, that Yaakov should go and bow down to his son. Why would he want that? What is, the, what is great about that? Why should, he, why should he be anticipating and waiting for that? Actually, the Medrash says that um, the words of the Medrash Rabbah, I don't have the Medrash in front of me right now, but there are interesting words. It says like, Yaakov is almost, says, says uh, to the, to, uh, uh, the, the, somehow the words over there is that Yaakov says, like, if this is what's written, if this is what's bashert, this is what has been written in Yosef's punkas, this is what's been written in Yosef's notebook, so let it be, I can't fight it. In other words, it implies that what? That Yaakov is not so happy about it. But if this has to be, let it be. But then the verse says clearly, that his father was waiting for it. He was waiting for the fulfillment of the dream. Now the Armaforshim, the art commentators, who learn and explain it as follows. And they say that when Yaakov was waiting for the fulfillment of this dream, he wasn't waiting for, for the part of him or the brothers bowing down. He wasn't happy about that. I mean, you want to be important, you want to be great, Yosef, and everybody should recognize that he has certain spiritual qualities, that he deserves to be a leader is one thing, but bowing down. Hey, who wants this in their family? Let's think about this. Who wants this? One will be the king and everybody will bow down to him. It's strange. It's very, very strange, right? So Yaakov, so, so, so the Mephar, there's a sefer called Meleches HaKodesh, and he wants to say that what Yaakov was waiting for, based on the Medrash, that when Yosef said his dream, the sun and the moon will bow down to me. Yaakov got excited because Yaakov, Yaakov knew who Yosef was. And he knew that Yosef doesn't have silly dreams. And he knew that his wife Rachel died. So you know why he was excited? Because Yaakov therefore believed that he is going to witness the resurrection of the dead. That the Tchias HaMesim, the resurrection of the dead, the coming of Mashiach, and the resurrection of the dead is going to happen in his days. And there Rachel is going to come back alive in the fulfillment of Yosef's dream. That was the, as the Medrash says, that Yaakov thought that Chiyas HaMesim was still three and a half thousand years away and Yaakov thought it's happening now. Now. He was excited about it. And therefore, the, the Malachas HaKodesh says that when Yaakov says, when Yaakov was awaiting the dream, it wasn't the part with the brothers bowing to Yosef. It was the other part that came along with it, that Rachel... Notes, even though part of the dream is at best tolerable, that we're going to bow down to him, but if this will bring back Rachel alive, he, he can, he can, he's happy about it. And actually the Malachas HaKodesh says that part of the resurrection wasn't only for Rachel. Yaakov said, well, if Rachel is coming alive... Then his grandfather Avram is going to come back alive, and Yitzchak, and Shem and Aver, these beloved teachers that he had, and that's what he was excited about. Okay, very nice pshat, but very, very far from pshutah shel mikra, from the simple reading. 
And Rashi doesn't definitely make any mention of that, that, that he's waiting for the Shamar Esadavar is referring to a side detail of the dream. According to this, it has nothing to do with the dream itself. It has to do with some sub-detail in the dream. Since it says, father and mother will come down, and mother is not alive, so you have to say, that's what he was excited about. Mm. Not pshat, not simple in the meaning. So therefore, uh, better to say, is that based on another question. The sages say over here, they, that, the, that the Rashi brings, that the sages say, we learn out from here that there is no dream without dvarim betelim. That every dream has to have details that aren't true. Now the question is, even if we say that there is a detail over here that's not true, and that is Bila, that, 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 that Rachel is not alive, and therefore his mother cannot bow down to him, so that's only one detail. Why do the sages say, Ein cholem beloi devarim betelim? Implying devarim, they don't say davar batal. Davar batal would mean in the singular. There's one detail that's not true. Well, the most you can see from this story is there's one detail that's not true. Not many things that are not true. When you're saying it in the plural, it means at least two details are not true. So therefore, we can say, and that is that really, really, when Yaakov when Yaakov um, heard this dream, um, Yaakov saw immediately a flaw. And that, as we said earlier, mother cannot come. She's not alive. Okay. And Yaakov, therefore, it's, so he didn't dismiss the dream completely. But he realized that there is truth. And there's, like, there, there's, it's a vague vision. Something over here is true. What's, gonna, what's true? The brothers will recognize Yosef's greatness. They will bow down to him. But he didn't think that he would bow down. In other words, the part that a father will bow down to a son was not part of the... That's why it says, Devarim betelim. Rash, Yaakov, Yaakov implied that the sun and the moon, both of them are not true in the dream that they will bow down. And the truth is, Yaakov was right. That part never happened. Yaakov did not bow down to Yosef. When the brothers came, when Yaakov meets, it doesn't say that Yaakov bows down. Even though later in Parshas Vayechi, when Yosef comes to visit him, when he's on his deathbed, and he has a little talk with him, actually right before that, when Yaakov was sick, Yosef comes, and they have a, a, Yaakov speaks to him about taking his body out of Egypt and burying him in the land of Israel. It says over there that after Yosef makes an oath that he's going to take care and make sure to arrange the funeral, it says, Vayishtachu Yisrael, that Yisrael bows down El Rosh Hamita, which means to the top of the bed. Well, so two things have to be noticed. Number one, it doesn't say that he bows down Artsa to the ground. Now, a bowing, full prostration of a king. The brothers did bow down. They bow down like you bow to a king. But Yaakov doesn't say he bowed down to the ground, which means going flat down on the ground. Yaakov, first of all, that would be disrespectful on Yosef's part to allow his father to do that. Mepharshim actually asked the question, how could Yosef even relate this dream? How is it not a problem with being disrespectful to his father? He's telling his father, you're going to bow down to me. They even have a problem with that. Okay, it's discussed. Yosef was supposed to tell his dream because he felt it's prophecy. And a prophet is not allowed to withhold a prophecy. That's one of the reasons why Yosef had to tell the dream, even though it was going to hurt him. Right? But we're not going to get into that. But the idea is that Yaakov never bows down to the ground. Now, even though it was mentioned, it says that Yaakov bows down to the top of the bed. And Rashi says 
that of that a fox at the time at the at the time that the fox is managing you know when the when the lion uh, for whatever reason caught the flu and he's in bed and he can't he can't be the king of the jungle so the fox has taken over and now he's the king so the rule is when the fox is king you bow down to him so Rashi says that Yaakov even though Yosef is his son he, the fox is king you got to bow down to him okay but even there um, Rashi says that um, the, uh, Rashi tells us that when Yaakov bows down, it means he's, he's intending to bow to the Shekhinah. Rosh because it says that the Shekhinah dwells, the divine presence dwells by the head of a bed of, an, of, a, of, the sick, of a sick person. God dwells, believe it or not, Hashem resides in the hospital. Where people are sick, Hashem comes and visits them and is at the top of the, at the head of the bed. So when Yaakov bowed down, it wasn't to Yosef, it was l'roish hamita to the to the to that, or as Rashi says later, he's bowing to thank God that he has a all his sons are tzaddikim. That was what Rashi says there as well. So you see, then Yaakov never bowed down to Yosef. Comes out that what that the dream when we say the dream wasn't true, it wasn't only one detail that wasn't true. It wasn't only that Rachel didn't come to bow down. It was also that Yaakov didn't bow down to Yosef. And therefore, we can say that's why Yaakov was hoping that the dream should come true. I mean, even though, like, again, though the hard, the main hardship in this, in waiting for this dream, is that Yaakov himself has to bow down to his son, which doesn't seem to make any sense. So therefore, uh, we say that that was also, and it's interesting. That's why when Yaakov is dismissing the dreams in front of the brothers, what does he say? Listen to his words. He says, just like the detail of the moon is not true. So too, vahashar is the words, kachashar um, hubatol. So the rest of it, he doesn't say kach kol hacholam bottle, The whole dream, shar means the rest of it. Rest of it can mean parts of it, not all of it. Because in truth, if Yaakov, let me ask a question: If Yaakov knows it's referring to Bila, as Rashi says, it's referring to Bila. Oh no, Yaakov doesn't know that. Okay, but Yaakov knows the rule. I'm sorry. Yaakov knows the rule, that it's referring to Bila, Yaakov didn't know. But Yaakov knows the rule that dreams have false parts to it. So then if he is telling his brothers or whoever, the dream, he's, making, he's dismissing the dream, that's a little bit being dishonest. He's not telling the truth to his brothers. So even they had a good intention, but he's, to his sons, he's, to his sons, he's kind of lying a little bit. He's saying that a dream is... He knows that every dream has to have things that are not true and he's, and he's dismissing the whole dream. So he's really... And the answer is, Yaakov didn't tell a lie at all. Yaakov said, just like this part isn't true, the rest, meaning other parts, are also not true. And that he really believed is not true, that he's not going to bow down. And it really was true that he didn't bow down. And they took it as the whole thing is nullified. That's how they took it. But what he said is that other parts are not true. Okay, fine. However, there's still a problem. And the problem is it is still hard to understand that why... Okay, even if we take Yaakov out of the picture, why would Yaakov be so excited about all the brothers bowing, also becoming a king, and all the brothers bowing down to him? I mean, okay, he knows that Yosef excels higher than all the other brothers. He knows he's a special child. He's gifted, he's above that. And he would wish that one day the others would acknowledge that and see the shining bright light of Yosef. And the others would recognize him. And maybe appoint him as a leader. 
But for them to bow down like a king, like servants bow down to a king, that Yaakov should wait and hope for it, it's a little, it's a little, a little hard to understand that. I mean, as we said before, which parent wants that and is amongst his children? Like all of them will bow down to one. So the idea is as follows. That you see, there's more to the story than just, you know, Yosef being king and the brothers bowing down. When you read the Parshas Vayeshev, you see that the story that's unfolding over here is the story of the Jewish people making their next move in history. Till now we were a people germinating, a seed beginning to grow in the land of Israel, which is our destined, it's our homeland. But then, for whatever reason, it is the destiny of the Jewish people to spend most of their history in exile not in their homeland. And now the first exile was supposed to begin, and God had already told this to Avram Avinu, your children are going to be um, 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 strangers in a land that doesn't belong to them, and they will be tortured, and they will go through a lot of suffering. And we say later in the parsha when Yaakov sent Yosef to Shechem, it says he sent him me'emek Hebron, from the valley of Hebron. And Rashi asks a simple question, Hebron is not on a valley. So Rashi says it wasn't that he sent him from the valley, it means that he sent him from the very deep place. Yaakov was sending him to, in other words, there is a deep plan over here that needed to be materialized. And Yaakov is sending Yosef in the fulfillment of that deep, mysterious plan that needs to happen, that the Jewish exile has to begin. And that's why Yosef was sent. So what do you see from here? That the entire story, even though Rashi says it only about that that mission when Yaakov is sending Yosef to the brothers, it really applies to the whole story of Parshas Vayeshev. The whole story of the Parshas Vayeshev is the Jewish people being uprooted from the land of Israel and moving into their place, their, their, their exile. Now, this could have happened, however, this could have happened in two different ways. One way it could have happened is the way it unfolded, where Yosef becomes the king and the Jewish, and he becomes the kind of the savior of the planet, and he feeds the whole world, and he fe- saves the family, and they all go there, saved from the famine, and they go down there. And then the Jewish people, when they came down to Egypt, came down as honorable citizens, because they're the family of Joseph, the savior of all of Egypt. And you know what happened? For over a hundred years, the Jewish people were the most respectable citizens in Egypt. Everybody looked at them like it was only later for the latter part of their Egyptian exile, that things turned around and it started to become bad, from bad to worse, until it became terrible and it became unbearable. But at least for the very, very first, first portion of the exile, because Yosef was the king and he, and he was the one who brought the Jewish people down into Gullus. First of all, the Jews were given the finest land in Egypt. They were given like the Beverly Hills of Egypt was given to the Jewish people. And, this, and they remained living over there Forever. Until they left. They left, they lived in the land of Goshen. This was all because Yosef went out first. Now, had this not happened, the sages say a very frightening statement. That it was ra'u. It was fitting for the Jewish people, meaning the, the, the exile in essence is supposed to be so harsh and so horrible and so intolerable. It's supposed to be that Yaakov was really worthy that he should be taken with chains down to Egypt. In other words, that people would come, chain Yaakov and his family, and take them in chains like, uh, like, like prisoners, like captives, like pirates, and take the family down to Gullus. 
That's really where the exile is in, in essence. It's only that the judgments were sweetened, and that Hashem decided to do it in a very covetous way, in a very honorable way for the family, and to ease the pain and the suffering that they would slowly, slowly, bit by bit, ease their way into the suffering. This was all dependent in what? Yosef becoming the king and Yosef being the ruler. Therefore, we could argue and we can say, that when it says that his father was waiting for the fulfillment of the dream, why was his father waiting? He was waiting because he was waiting with, to see. You know, he knew that something has got to happen now. He doesn't know exactly what. But he knows there is something that's going to happen that's going to bring the family down into, into exile. The transition has to happen. And he hoped and waited it's going to be through this dream. Why? Because Yosef will be... Why is he? Because like this, he's going to avoid the Gullah's beginning in a horrific way, which would have been the other alternative. Let the Gullah's begin with in 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 this in a state of royalty, in a state of in a in an honorable fashion, and that's what it means that he was waiting for his son to become king. That would be an explanation. The problem, however, is that in the dream that Yosef has there is no clue at all about Yosef being the king of Egypt. It doesn't like say that Yosef will be a ruler of a great land. The dream only emphasizes Yosef ruling over his brothers. See, if we say that the dream would be having part of it, we're talking about the, a Jewish empire in a foreign land. So you can say Yaakov was dreaming of that happening, that the Jews should be, should be, should be on top. And that would be seen in there. But the dream doesn't show. The dream doesn't exhibit any, any details of that kingship, of Yosef ruling over the nation, over a foreign nation. The only thing it mentions is Yosef ruling over the brothers. Now why would that be something that, um, why would that be something that, uh, that, that Yaakov would be, would, be, would be waiting for? So you have to say, no, no, no. There is something about not just about Yosef being a king, but about Yosef being a king over the brothers that Yaakov wants, and that the brothers should bow down to him. What does Yaakov want in Yosef ruling over the brothers? And here's a very important idea, and that is, for the Jewish people to survive the exile, Yaakov knows the Jewish people have to, are going into exile. It has a very deep, divine secret and a great mission and a great accomplishment and we cannot receive the Torah and we can't march on to become the light upon all the nations and to elevate the entire world and bring the world to the Messianic, to Mashiach's era unless we will go through this horrific exile and the consequential exiles that are coming afterwards. This has to be. There's no, there's no argument. It cannot be any other way. That was already accepted by Avram Avinu. Fine. Ya- now Yaakov is thinking about survival. How in the world are the Jewish people going to survive such a difficult exile, both materially, physically, and spiritually? And his main concern is spiritually. Because they're going to go into a land, especially Egypt, which was known to be a a very, very lonely, a very, very, very immoral place. They're going to live there. This is going to have a terrible, devastating effect on them. So how are the Jewish people going to survive? And the way the Jewish people survived was because Yosef was their king. There is a pasuk that refers to the Jewish people and that the Jewish people are named amongst our names. One of our names, we're called Yisrael, Yaakov, and we're also called Yaakov. But we also are called, B'nai Yisrael as a people, are called Yosef. In Tehillim, there's a pasuk that says, Nohag Katsain Yosef, that he led like sheep Yosef, that Hashem led like, like a flock, he led Yosef. Who's Yosef? The Jewish people. 
So the sages say, why are the Jewish people considered, why are the Jewish people named Yosef? Yosef is not the father of all of Israel. We understand that we can be named Yisrael because Yisrael is our father of everyone. We can be maybe called Avram. We're not even called Avram. But it would fit Avram Yitzchak. But why Yosef? Yosef is only a leader of one tribe or two tribes. But why would Yosef be? So the Gemara says, the Talmud says, was because Shalkil Kalam Meharav, since he was the one who sustained them in the time of hunger, since in the day of time of the famine, the Jewish people would have perished, and Yosef was the one who fed them. So since without him they would not survive, it's considered as if he gave birth to them, that he's actually their father, he's, and they're all called in his name. Because he, he, he okay, that's, the, that's what the Talmud says. But we have to understand this, it doesn't only be materially, that he gave them physical survival by literally feeding them, saving them from the famine. What it really means is that he nour- nourished them spiritually. Yosef nourished the Jewish people spiritually. Why? You see that Yosef has a quality that none of the other tribes have. Not only the tribes don't, even, don't have it, even Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, even our fathers, didn't possess Yosef's quality. The quality that Yosef had over the brothers was that Yosef was able to be completely immersed in this world and yet maintain his spiritual integrity, his morality, and not only that, his spirituality and his connection to God, and that it would not in w- even ta- it wouldn't be it wouldn't be in any way compromised. You see, the other tribes were 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 um, were shepherds. The reason why they took to the profession of of sh- of being shepherds and leading flocks is because society was corrupt, and they did not want to have to mix with society. So their desire was that they would their desire was that they would kind of move off to the you go out into the fields, you go away. So you don't have to live in the hustle bustle of city life. You don't have to deal with the uh, great me- me- metropolitan and all the, all the stuff that are going on. You don't have to see all the immorality, all the immodesty and all the stuff. Because you're out in the field. You're out in the field with the flocks. You're, na- you're in nature. And we were in nature. And we just spoke last two weeks ago. Yaakov had his little flute, his fiddle or his flute. And he played songs to God and he's in deep meditation. That was the, he's in the countryside. And that's what the, that's what the tribes did. Because they were such spiritual people and such godly people, they did not want to get, get into the distractions of the material world. That's why they did that. Which means that had they, had they gone into city life and gotten involved in all the stuff that the world represents, it would have tarnished their soul. It would have affected them. It would have lessened them. Yosef had a unique power that none of the Shvatim had. He went down to Egypt, and as soon as he comes down to Egypt, he's, a, he's immediately appointed as a manager. It's like he can't just close his eyes, he can't sit off to the side and say, till him all day, or learn, you know, Mishnayas Palpeh. He can't do that. He has to invest his mind and take care of what's going on, because he's the manager of Potiphar's house. He's running the entire place. And he's faced with temptation. And he over, he, he's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't affect him. He manages to pass test after test. Then he's thrown into prison. And guess what? He becomes the chief warden, the manager of the prison. Again, he can't sit in his own little corner and be, uh, be, in, 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 be in a state of spiritual meditation. He can't do that. He's in charge. And you can imagine what type of guys were hanging out in the Egyptian prisons. Are there? What kind of people, what kind of vulgarity he had to deal with, what kind of loneliness Yosef had to deal with. And then he's appointed by Paro and he becomes the manager of the entire Egypt. Paro is sitting, shoot, shooting poker all day and playing pool. What do you think Paro is doing? Yosef is taking care of the country. 
That means he had all day long, he's meeting with ministers, with, 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 he's running the entire country. And I'm sure it was, he had to meet with men, he had to meet with women, he had to meet with the entire country. He couldn't be this, like what we think, this sudden tzaddik that is completely removed from the world. Yet Yosef remains Yosef at tzaddik. And it says in, in Hasidus, an amazing thing, it says that Yosef, not only was he, not only didn't he sin, not only did he become chasvashal and persuade, persuaded by the by the by the by the by the by the, by the lowly, lowly, immoral culture of Egypt, not only that, but he did not stop even for one moment in his deep dvekus Hashem. It was amazing for him to be able to be both places at the same time. To be able to be in a deep connection to God continuously, because ultimately God is everywhere and in everything. So for someone who's really connected to the very, 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 very essence of Hashem Himself could be completely here and completely there at the same time. That was Yosef. The Balshemtov. Friday night in his earlier years, the Balshemtov didn't talk to anybody Friday night. Because Friday night we know according to Kabbalah and according to Hasidus, there is a, a great aliyah sa'olamah. There is a great cosmic elevation where the worlds are, are, are drawn higher, where the soul of creation is elevated the Shekhinah rises together with all souls. Can you imagine the Baal Shem Tov's Neshama? Friday night, to what kind of spiritual peaks his soul reached? But he had a problem. He couldn't talk to people. He prayed to God to help him out, to give him the ability to be able to talk to people. And the Baal Shem Tov, after davening, would have conversations with people later. Later, he was able to accomplish this. And he was able to talk to people about regular things, whatever it was that they needed to speak to him about, and yet, it didn't in any way interfere with his dvekus. And that was considered an elevation, way higher than he was before. Before it was a contradiction. The world was a contradiction to holiness. When someone reaches a real deep level of godliness, is that the world is not a contradiction anymore to holiness. This was Yosef's ability. And when Yosef nurtured the Jewish people, it meant that Yosef gave his spiritual quality into them because this is a quality that we will need when we go to exile. You see, when Mashiach comes, we don't need this quality that much anymore because we're going to sit all day, as Maimonides says, we're going to study Torah. So then you don't need this that much. Or in the time of, but when you're going into Egypt, you're going into exile, you're going to be kind of enmeshed, enmeshed in the world. Take a look at Jews today. How involved we are in American life or in modern day life. Everything, completely. And yet, to be able to maintain one's spiritual, one's, 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 one's um, um, integrity, be an ethical person, a moral person, a holy person, a godly person. That, that's the power from us. Even more than that, not only did Mitzrayim not influence Yosef, but Yosef elevated Egypt. Yosef had a deep impact on him. First of all, he circumcised them all. So even though it was just a physical act, he was king, and he could, it meant that he brought a certain purification, a certain refinement. Yosef had an impact, meaning not only did the darkness not affect him, he affected the darkness and changed the exile itself, changed the Gentile environment that he was to become a little, a little closer to Kedusha. And that's what Jewish people do in exile as well. I mean, externally it looks like the exile has an impact on our, on our souls. But in the truth, we're still Jewish today. We're putting tefillin today. We have mezuzahs on our door today. We're having this share here tonight. We're learning, we're learning Torah. We're, we're amazing. We're an amazing people. We went through such a darkness. 
we were we were faced with every possible challenge, including the challenge of the modern world. And yet, take a look. Take a look of how much Yiddishkeit, how beautiful the Jewish people are. It's unbelievable. And not only that, we've had such impact on the world, trans-changing, transforming humanity, as we spoke last week, and preparing the world for Mashiach. To be able to do that, where do we get that quality? We get it from Yosef. But in order to receive from Yosef, you know how we can receive? The brothers had to completely submit to him. By them bowing down to Yosef and completely submitting to him, they became like a complete... So that in that submission, they were able, Yosef could now channel his light into their souls. Because whenever to, in, order for, in order for someone to be a keli, in order for someone to be a vessel for something, the keli has to be buttle, has to be nullified, surrendered, and abnegated to the light. So that the keli can receive, the vessel can receive the light. So that's why Yaakov was waiting. What Yaakov was waiting for the brothers to bow down was he was waiting for the strength. He was waiting that Yosef can... Yaakov knew the power of his son Yosef. And he was hoping that Yosef can share it with the brothers. And by him sharing it with them, he would elevate them to at least close to his level so that the Jewish people would be able to go into Gullus and withstand the Gullus and make it through the exile intact and come out stronger, enriched, and transform the exile as, as well. And that was Yaakov's um, anticipation of Yosef's, of this dream being realized. But as we said earlier, it would require the brothers recognizing that quality and surrendering themselves to Yosef. All right. However, this does not answer it completely. You didn't think I was finished, right? It's a little too early. Um, it doesn't answer completely. Why doesn't it answer completely the question? Because at best, what, what does it mean? We're hoping, we're waiting for the dream to come about because this would be the way we can survive the next stage of our history, which is exile. So we can tolerate it. But what does the Pasuk say? He was waiting. Masai, when? He's waiting and hoping. How can you say that you're waiting and hoping for something that was important to bring the next state, which is exile? Why would you wait for exile? No one, it's, Exile is a terrible thing. It's a necessary evil. It's a necessary, it's a necessary suffering that you need in order to reach something higher. But to sit and wait and hope, Yaakov is living in the land of Israel with all the godly light, with his family, it's beautiful. To him, to sit and hope for what? For the next stage to come that Yosef will become the leader. So that will enable them to withstand the Gullahs. Okay, so they can withstand the Gullahs. It's important. But the Lashen Masai, Yoshi Rashi says, what is the words over here? Shamar, Hoyamamtin, waiting, Umetzapeh, waiting impatiently. Masai Yavai, when will this come? See, I have to say there's something really else going on over here. Yaakov is not waiting for Gullus. Yaakov is waiting for Geula. Yaakov is waiting for Mashiach. When we say to wait, Yoshevu Metzape and waiting, what do we wait for? What is a Jew supposed to wait for? We wait every day for Mashiach's coming. You see, this story of, of Yosef and his dreams, in addition to it meaning Yosef and his brothers, and the whole story meaning Yosef and his brothers, there is a deeper story taking place over here. Meaning, everything in Torah, Bechlal, what happened in the lives of the fathers, was an empowerment for what's going to happen later with the children. 
That's true in every parsha. Everything that happened with our fathers was later going to reoccur as a simon, as a sign that this was later going to reoccur with the children that we spoke so many times. But in parsha's Vayeshev, it's more than that. Over here, not only is this an empowerment for what was going to happen later, but the very events that are happening are really futuristic occurrences. While they're happening on one level, they're happening on another level as well, like you see in the parsha. It says that the, 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 the Medrash says, Everybody is busy over here. The brothers are busy selling Yosef. Yaakov is busy sitting on the floor crying. Um, Yehuda is busy getting married. And God is busy creating the light of Mashiach. That's what God is busy with. So the explanation is, it's not like everybody's doing their own thing and, God, and how is God creating the light of Mashiach? Because when Yehuda and Tamar get married, in the end, the whole story, the, the, the father of Mashiach is born, Peretz, who is going to be the forefather of King David and ultimately of Mashiach. So simply you learn the Medrash, everybody's busy doing their stuff and God is busy doing something else. But that's not really what it's saying. What it's really saying is that in the midst of every part of, unbeknown to all the players, whatever they were doing, they thought, they thought they're angry, they're going to sell Yosef. He thought he's crying. But all these are really integral parts for one thing that's Mashiach's happening. So it's happening on one level now, it's happening on a much deeper level. And from a more inner level, something else is going on over here. Mashiach is being born. That means when Yosef is becoming king, in addition to it meaning Yosef, it's referring to another descendant of Yosef. And that is, the Talmud tells us, a very interesting concept, um, that Mashiach has two parts to it. And that there's actually people know of Mashiach, but there's really two Mashiachs. There is a Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach, a descendant of Yosef, who is sometimes called Mashiach ben Ephraim, from the descendants of Ephraim, and there is a Mashiach ben David. And Mashiach ben Yosef is the forerunner for Mashiach ben David. And before the Mashiach, the descendant of David, comes, there is a man who precedes him who does more of the groundwork and does, lays the underlying infrastructure. This concept is an interesting concept. It's brought in Masech the Sukkah, the Talmud talks about a man called Mashiach ben Yosef, and he derives it from a Pasuk. It says, because according to the Jewish, according to tradition, is that this Mashiach ben Yosef is the one who fights big battles. And some connect it to the Armageddon Wars. That Mashiach ben Yosef is the leader of the Jewish people during that time. And then, from, from a verse in the Navi, it implies that Mashiach ben Yosef is killed in battle. And that there's a very big mourning and a crying, and the Jewish people are like crying, and it's like a big eulogy, because everybody's like so distraught. And then it seems like from different midrashim that as a result of the fall of Mashiach ben Yosef there can be a terrible catastrophes and all kinds of stuff happening. And, the like. and then finally Mashiach ben David comes and Mashiach ben David um, saves the day. Not only that, he resurrects Mashiach ben Yosef, brings him back to life and we have the complete, complete redemption. The whole story, it's, it's mentioned in Zohar and it's mentioned in Gemara Masech, the Sukkah and Dafnun Ches, I think. Nun um, Beis maybe. Um, and, and, and in a couple of places in Zohar, the Vilna Goyen speaks a lot about it, about the concept of Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben Dov, a lot discussed about it. It's very unclear what's going to happen. It's very unclear what's going to happen. Um, the, the, uh, it, it, it implies from the writings of the Arizal, the Arizal writes about, because people, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, like, uh, a lot of, uns, a lot of, a lot of, a uh, lot bl- um, Blurriness about this whole thing, a lot of confusion about it. Uh, so, so the Arizal actually writes that when we say the Chisei David Avdacha Meheira Lasecha Tachin, that the Chisei David, the throne of David, 
when we did pray every day, V'chisei David, that the, the throne of David, Avdacha, your servant, Mehera, quickly, B'Seicha talking, you should place, that the throne of David, that's Mashiach ben Yosef. And what we're praying for is that he shouldn't die. Mashiach, in other words, it's not set in stone that he has to be killed. And that In general, the whole idea that there's going to be an Armageddon war, and God forbid, which some people say is a nuclear war, and who knows, well, 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 well that whole thing, the Tamidi Bel Shemta, the students of the Holy Bel Shemta, have already said that as since this exile has um, been prolonged so long, and the Jewish people have had so, 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 so much suffering, that that has been already nullified. The Shemesh Shmuel, the great Sachet of Rebbe in Parshas um, Vayigash, says that, and he says that it's, it's that we heard in those from Tzadikim, that that's null, it doesn't have to be. That all that doesn't have to happen. Al-Kopanim, what am I just bringing out over here? That even if physically there doesn't have to be this whole idea of Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David, as a literal person, some people say that it's the same person, that it's, his neshama has qualities of Mashiach of Yosef, and he has qualities of David, whatever it is. But um, the, the idea is that Yosef has a connection to Mashiach, to the coming of Mashiach. And therefore, when it says over here that Yaakov was waiting for Yosef's kingdom, what Yaakov is really waiting is for the initiation of the Mashiach process. Yaakov is waiting. He's waiting for Mashiach. That's what it is. Since every Jew during the time of exile is supposed to wait all the time, continuously, when is Mashiach coming? So Yaakov is the first Jew who's waiting for Mashiach. Even before the Gullahs begins, even before the exile begins, he's waiting already for that kingdom, for Mashiach ben Yosef, which will be followed up by Mashiach ben, ben David. That's for Aviv Shaman and And that gives the Jewish people the power. Where do you think the Jewish people had the power that while they were in the cattle cars, going to Auschwitz, they were singing, Ani and Where do they have in the depth of darkness that ability? To have such a munah, such faith, and not just faith, but also waiting and hoping, they took it from Yaakov. That Yaakov is waiting. Rashi says he's he's waiting, hoping, when will he come? You take these words out of here, out of the context, it's Mamash sounds like the words that we use. And it's interesting, the next proof to that. Rashi brings a pasuk where it says, V'chein shomer am emunim. Shomer emunim is a pasuk which in Yeshaya where it says the people are waiting for God to keep his promise and take them out of exile. That's the pasuk. Which means that Rashi is connecting it, even though simply he's just using the word shomer. He's, 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 he's proving to us that the word shomer can mean waiting, means to await for something. But which pasuk is he using from a verse that speaks about waiting for God to keep his promise to bring Mashiach? Now, here's a very important thing. Lately, I've been hearing, and I hear this, and it gets me so upset and I, 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 that I felt I have to share this. I heard it this Shabbos when I was in New York from someone who told me this, and then I heard it a few weeks ago from, my, from, 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 a, from a girl who was telling me that she heard this in school, and I get this all the time. There are people, I don't know who, rabbis, people, that teachers, that have this mishagas, that have this literally craziness, that I don't know where they picked up this, this idea, that Mashiach's coming is a very frightening thing, and that when God forbidden, <laughs> yeah, see what came out of my mouth is that when God forbid Mashiach will come, because 
the bringing, bringing such fear to people that when Mashiach will come, like most of the Jewish people won't merit it. Only be a few people. And if you're not, if you're not a tzaddik or you're not a this, it's going to be terrible. And that who knows what's going to happen when Mashiach is going to come. And some people even say kinds of things that if you, if you looked at something you weren't supposed to, then you're not going to have eyes. And if you did, if you stole something, then whatever, if you weren't that honest, whatever, you did not vary with your hands, then you won't have your hands, you won't have your feet. So I'm thinking to myself, God forbid, what are we going to have? We're going to have a super ISIS over there lining everybody up, chopping people's heads and noses off. What kind of craziness? This is such stupidity. And our rabbis who go ahead and scare people, they're innocent girls who are terrified to daven for Mashiach because someone hacking them in the head it's just, this is horrible to take away a Muna from Yidin. The Rambam says that a Jew is obligated every minute to wait for Mashiach. Now, which Jew? I don't understand. Yaakov of it. So you're going to say, yeah, that's for Tzadikim. What do you mean for Tzadikim? Which Jew can say he's a Tzadik? Which Jew? Yaakov was afraid to meet Esav because Yaakov felt that he's not a Tzadik. He felt he became small for his sins. So everybody has reason to be feared because, because of sins. Obviously, we know. That God feels terrible for what He did for us for the last 2,000 years. We were such heroes. We are such an amazing people. That we put up with such an exile. And yet we stuck it through. Thick and thin. We're Jews today. We love Hashem. We're standing. We're waiting for Giyula. And someone comes and says that when Mashiach comes... People are going to be killed. And people are going to die. And only... Now I know there is Medrash... Okay, there's a billion medrashim. There's all kinds of medrashim. But it says clearly in Svarim that all these medrashim, which speaks about Mashiach, Ramam says, you don't know, we don't know which ones, a lot of it is, means allegoric things, a lot of things doesn't mean to be taken in the literal. One thing Rambam does tell us is that we have to wait for Mashiach every moment. So which crazy person is going to wait for a time when everyone, half the Jewish people are going to die, chas v'shalom. It's so, it's so insane, it's so ridiculous. So we need to know that it's not true. That not only is Mashiach is going to, first of all, is going to take every single Jew out of exile. Every single Jew. They won't even, in the Agada by Pesach by night, we say, we say to the wicked son, If he was there, he wouldn't have been redeemed. So the emphasis is on the word Sham. Before Matan Torah, before God made his ultimate treaty with the Jewish people, wicked people did not, because some people try to compare it to Mitzrayim. In Mitzrayim, four-fifths of the Jewish people did not make it. So the same over here, um, and, and people have a pleasure. I, I've heard this. People have a pleasure to say, and there it was only four fifths, but over here it's going to be like, uh, 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 I forgot what they say, um, like uh, not four fifths, but have a, a whole different other, much more than that. I mean, so but the verse says the opposite. There, now every single Jew is coming out of Gullus. And it says in Daniel that. When, when the time of redemption comes, Oz Yamud Malach Michoel. Michoel is the archangel of the Jewish people. And he is going to be Malamed's Chus in front of God. He's going to find favor. And it says by the people say, well, there's a big day of judgment. The big day of judgment are for all those anti Semites who hurt the Jewish people. And for the judgment that comes for Chas Shalom, if there is a judgment on the Jewish people, it says that Mashiach Tzitkenu, who is the ultimate Oev Yisrael who loves Jews with an infinite love, is going to stand and find virtue and merit from every single Jew. There won't even. It's like he's going to outdo Reb Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, who was able to find in the in the in the worst Jew, he was able to find the merit. Mashiach will do wonders in finding the beauty of every single Jew, and every Jew will shine. And it's going to be a time of joy and happiness and laughter and excitement. 
And all this that people say is null and void, and it doesn't mean anything. And I think that those rabbis need to do tshuva for, for, for scaring people. Simple Jews have always been waiting for Mashiach with happiness and with joy and with anticipation. We've been through enough. It's time for us to sing. It's time for us to dance. It's time for us to get up from the floor. Enough ashes and enough suffering. Hashem is happy with the Jewish people. We are happy with God. And, our, and, and the coming of Mashiach is going to be besimcha rabba, with amazing... And the one doesn't have to be even one tiny bit more bloodshed. If chas v'shalom, we had a... You know, whatever we had already this year was more than enough. And it doesn't have to be anything more. And there will just be... And, and, and we don't even look for bloodshed in the world. And whatever needs to be cleaned up should be cleaned up. But without pain, without suffering, and for sure for, the, for Am Yisrael and for the Jewish people, it will be a time of goodness and happiness forever and ever.